We are going to be in 1 John 4 this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as we've spent the last year studying John's gospel, and then even the last few weeks studying John's first epistle to the church, we really come to recognize and see this natural complementary nature that these two books have with one another. We see in John's, John, John's gospel, excuse me, even in his stated purpose, he says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The point, he says, of the book of John, in his own words, is that you might believe, and that in believing, you might have life in his name. He got, in, in his epistle, he states the purpose in, in chapter 5, verse 13, when he says, I write these things to you who do believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's gospel points us to the Savior who gives us life, and his epistle demonstrates the behavior that this life in Christ produces. And so in 1 John, as we've talked about, we see these distinctive tests in order to demonstrate what life in Christ looks like and how we can be sure that we are really experiencing this life in his name. And as we've discussed earlier in the series, we kind of see it broken down into three distinct forms. There's the doctrinal test. That is what we believe about God and even about ourselves. There's the moral test, how it is that we conduct ourselves and how it is that we obey God's commandments. And then we see that there's the relational test, how it is that we show love to God and to one another. And so as we continue to study 1 John this morning, we want to make sure that we understand exactly what these tests are for. They are signposts along a journey to ensure that we are on the right path, not things to be done in order to merit salvation. God in his kindness has given us these tests. He's given us these assessments to be a loving assurance to those of us who are in Christ and to be a merciful warning and correction to those who are not. So as we study chapter four this morning, we're going to see John return to two familiar tests that we've seen throughout this epistle, the doctrinal and the relational. And specifically, we want to talk this morning about how the doctrinal informs the relational aspect of these texts. So if you have your Bible, turn in 1 John 4 and stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> John writes, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, and the world listens to them, and they speak from the world. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God 
Anyone who is not loved does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we are also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Lord, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. We come to you this, this text this morning with a desire to be shaped by your word with a great need to be conformed more to the image of the God who himself is perfect love. I ask that you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and that you would make our hearts receptive to your word and that by your spirit, you might help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray that you would do all of this for Christ's glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The main point of the text this morning is this. God desires us to have assurance that we know him by helping us discern true doctrine by his spirit and by abiding in true love. God desires us to have assurance that we know him by helping us discern true doctrine and by abiding in true love. The first point that we're going to see is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. God desires, excuse me, that we have assurance by helping us discern true doctrine by his spirit. We see where Stephen left off at the end of chapter 3 and verse 24. John says, he says, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And he says, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So John is saying we can have assurance that we are in Christ, that we know God because of the spirit whom he has given us. But then he follows that up immediately in chapter four by saying that not every spirit is really from God. Remember that by way of context here, what John is writing to the church about and what the situation is. The church is being troubled by false teachers who've departed from orthodoxy and are sowing confusion and discord 
among, through aberrant teaching, teaching, namely denying the physical incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see from this text that these false teachers, these secessionists, those who have gone out from them, it says, because they were not of them, are doing all of it under the guise of a prophetic message and being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet they're preaching a message that is explicitly contrary to that of the apostolic message, one that is denying the full humanity of Jesus. So John is writing to this congregation with such conflicting message being proclaimed among them by two groups, each claiming to be speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit. How is the church to know which message and which spirit to believe? John models what being a loving shepherd looks like here in protecting his sheep. He's not naive in the way that he does this. He's not complacent in the way that he does this or the prospect of this threat, but rather he is vigilant to shield and protect the sheep from the wolves that threaten to devour here. And John is compelled to do so, he says in verse 2, because many false teachers, he admits, have already gone out into the world. And John is like a good physician here, and he understands that the best defense against disease is a strong natural immunity. And he writes to give guidance to help the church body to detect and fight off this potential virus. And to that end, John gives very simple and very definitive proof in testing which spirit it is that's informing the person or the message behind it. And that proof is doctrinal. This test simply says, do they confess Jesus Christ in the flesh or do they not? That's going to be the test. That is the whole warp and woof of it. Do they confess Jesus Christ in the flesh or do they not? He says, by this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And this test tracks exactly with what John has taught about and warned about in his gospel. And the primary ministry of the Spirit is going to be to bear witness to and to glorify Jesus Christ in the flesh. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, he said, John 15, 26, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is a primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. Any spiritual work that is contrary to that witness is most certainly going to be counterfeit. Likewise, John elaborates in John 16, 13 through 15 about the ministry of the Spirit, saying, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. And he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. Conversely, John lays out what it is the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist is. We see it in chapter 1 of 1 John, or chapter 2 and verse 28, when it says how John defines the Antichrist. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. A message that denies either the divinity or the humanity of Jesus is not only a failing to bear witness to the dual nature of Christ and to glorify him, but it in fact is a denial of him as he has revealed himself. 
Simply put, those teachers who testify to the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ are those possessed by the Spirit of God and those who deny the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ are those possessed by the Spirit of the Antichrist. And yet, even as he warns him, John is desiring to give assurance to his listeners that they have overcome these spirits. They've overcome these spirits precisely because they are from God and indwelt by his true spirit. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We are, when we are from God and dwelt by his true spirit, whose power and witness is greater and more effective than the spirits of the Antichrist, the spirits that are in and from the world. And herein lies the, the confidence and the assurance that John wants us to have in this test of spiritual discernment, to know that if we truly are from God, and if the spirit of God indwells us, we cannot and will not ultimately be deceived as believers. The spirit of deception is powerful and Satan loves to sow confusion and doubt in the minds of believers, but ultimately in doctrines of, pers- in doctrines of first importance, Satan's efforts are futile. The spirits of the Antichrist are from the world and therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. But the flip side is also true because those who know God listen to God. And this is a point that I think is really worth slowing down on and paying careful attention to. I want to look at verse 6 in a little more detail. He says, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. And so throughout this gospel, he's using the terms they and we and you, and he's using them in different ways at parts. But I think when he gets to chapter, to verse 6 here, this we are from God Instead of it being inclusive, something that's including the entirety of the church or the body of believers, I think he's talking about himself and those who are charged with the true teaching of the church, those who have an apostolic witness. We, he says, are those who are from God, called and commissioned directly by Christ and spoke and taught of him with his authority. And to reject that apostolic authority, he says, is to reject Christ's authority himself, something John makes very clear. Whoever knows God listens to us. That is those who are doing the teaching under the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, he says, we are going to know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So if that was true back then, how much more do we see that being true today? Those who believe and listen to the apostolic witness, which is inscribed as scripture, are those who know God. And those who refuse to believe and listen to God's word are not. Every every word that God has inspired through his prophets and apostles is true and carries the full authority of God. Ephesians 2.20 makes this point when Paul is describing the member's household of God. He says, the household of which is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. In other words, this household is built upon this same apostolic witness and the prophetic witness to the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ himself. We see modern examples of what John speaks to here. One of the arguments that you'll hear um, from those who seek to affirm sins or norms that the world puts forth 
is to pit Jesus against the other authors of Scripture, effectively claiming that only the red-letter text of the Bible carries real authority. The argument goes that if so-and-so was really a sin and something that Jesus hated, why did he not speak to it himself? We hear that with the sin of homosexuality, don't we? How many times have we heard that? Jesus himself didn't speak to it, and so if he didn't speak to it, it must not be important. It must not really be a sin. It must not really be something God is concerned with. Sure, Paul, Moses, and Jude may have spoken to it, affirmed it as a sin, condemned it as a sin, is contrary to God's design for men and women. But really, those were just unenlightened people that were living captive to the moment in time in which they lived and the customs of their day. But if they were really wrong, if these sins were really egregious in God's sight, Jesus himself would have condemned it, the argument goes. Similarly, even in a doctrine that we hold true in this church, a doctrine like complementarianism, even though Paul speaks clearly to God's good design for complementarian values inside the church and inside the home, if Jesus didn't mention it and Jesus didn't teach it explicitly, it must not really be that important or even true. The argument really isn't that clever, and yet it persists nonetheless, and it gains tractions with those in the world because it is essentially seeking to divide the word of God into those words which are authoritative and those which are not. And so hear me carefully on this. This is something that I really wanted to say carefully as we talk about this. I'm not equating second and third degree doctrines, those like complementarianism, with those matters which are of first importance like John is dealing with here, the physical incarnation of Jesus Christ. Nor am I saying that we need to have some sort of doctrinal perfection to merit our way to salvation. Um, and as a matter of fact, I think one of the things that we can grow in as a church is the way that we define and the way that we uh, handle differences of opinions on matters of second and third importance. We hear the term heresy thrown around a lot is Reformed Christians, and really it does an injustice to the real heresies, to the real issues that John is addressing here in which the early church fought so stridently against. But what John says in verse 6 is true, that those who have been born of God and are indwelt by His Spirit will be those who see evidence of the Spirit in their desire to humbly learn from, submit to, and obey the full counsel of His Word. So as Christians, we have the Spirit of God testifying to the truth of God's Word and the sure and steady sanctifying effect it has on us is an assurance that God gives us that we too know that the Spirit of truth abides in us and not a spirit of error. So He desires to give us assurance through the spirit of discernment by His Spirit. And we see next in verses 7 through 21 that God desires to give us assurance by abiding in true love. God desires that we have assurance by abiding in true love. And first, we're going to see the grounds of Christian love in verse 7 through 12. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, for no one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. 
And so John, having just addressed the deep doctrinal divide between believers in the world, moves on to discuss this relational test that we have as believers. How is it that we are going to love one another? But one of the things that we want to pay careful attention to this morning is the way that the doctrinal importance of what he says grounds the relational test that he seeks. So John exhorts us to love one another with the reason being that love is from God himself. And this love that emanates from him and finds expression through us is going to be another sign that we truly know God. And John, as he so often does throughout this epistle, he states the positive as well as the negative side of the truth. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. J.I. Packers is right when he says about this. He says, God is love is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible. There is so much to unpack with this verse, a luxury that we just don't have time for this morning. But I do want to stop and reflect, reflect briefly on the verse in two particular ways as it relates to how the doctrinal is going to inform the relational. I think it's imperative understanding the nature of God's love for us and the doctrinal root which is necessary to produce the kind of relational fruit that John is calling us to. Because what we believe will always determine what we do. So two doctrinal observations that I think are critical to informing this relational aspect, both having to do with how we understand love is a proper attribute of God. And I think the first and maybe most foundational way to think about this and most appropriate way to think about this is from a Trinitarian standpoint. John, I think, is explicit to imply that. And he's certainly explicit in the way that he describes it in other parts of Scripture, including this epistle. The argument goes, or the idea goes, that since love is an attribute of God, it demands that that attribute exists eternally with God, in God himself, apart from any works of creation. Creation itself is not eternal. But love, being a proper attribute of God, must be eternal because it has existed in him and subsisted with him from the beginning of time for all eternity. Were love to be manifested at creation only or for the first time, then God would be capable of taking on additional attributes. He'd be capable of changing in some degree, something that we know God is incapable of. Rather, love being an attribute of God means that there existed an eternity past a Godhead which reciprocated love, as Scripture makes clear in other parts, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this Trinitarian distinction matters to us because it matters to John as he goes to great effort to demonstrate the triune nature of God's love. He demonstrates this triune nature of God's love involving the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the Trinitarian formula that we see all throughout his writings and all throughout Scripture, that we are loved by the Father, in the, by God the Father, in God the Son, and through God the Spirit. God's love is a triune love, and the demonstration of it in salvation is a triune work that involves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this formula throughout John's writing, and we see it here in the epistle, and we cannot lose sight of it as we think about the rich theological grounds that it implies for us in verse 10. So secondly, 
we see, first we see that it is a Trinitarian love. And second, love being an attribute of God means that this love is possessed in its most perfect, most pure, and most infinite capacity in God alone. God alone defines what love is by his nature and by how he has disclosed that nature to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in scripture. Any conception of love that we may have must be measured against the perfect love that God alone possesses. He alone is the North Star by which we orient every other definition of love. His love subsists in perfection with all other attributes that he possesses in perfection as well, thereby making his love a holy love, a righteous love, an omniscient love. And John shows this distinctiveness of God's love and how God has demonstrated his love for us in verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent God to be the propitiation, or sent Jesus, his son, to be the propitiation for our sins. Think about how different this conception of love is in the way that the world defines it. If you were to ask a six-year-old whether his mom was loving him by letting him watch a tablet all day and letting him eat candy for every single meal, he would probably answer in the affirmative, right? That would feel like true love to a six-year-old, being able to do what you want, when you wanted, how you wanted, all the time. But thank the Lord that he's given most of us better moms than that, that, that seek our better welfare, that, seek true, that show us true love by giving us what is best for us and not just what we desire. The world says that love is affirming all things about us, including our sinful desires and actions. But God's love is not oriented on that. God's love is not oriented on affirming our sinful nature, but rather it is by paying the highest price possible to redeem that sinful nature. Think about how infinitely kind this kind of love is compared to what the world tells us love is. We must have our conception of love be defined by the perfect, pure, and infinite expression of it in God's nature. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The word translated here, ought, may not do full justice to the imperative nature of what John is saying, as it can easily be translated, owe, or obligated to. In other words, since God loved us in this way, we owe it to one another. We're obligated to one another to love each other in a like manner. This is less a suggestion that to be tried as it is a forceful imperative to obey, to be obeyed. And so the question becomes, how do we love one another? We obviously can't love in the exact same way that, Jesus, that God describes here. We can't atone for anyone else's sin. But I do think in these two verses, we can see concrete expressions of how it is that we can love in a like manner. So one of the things that we see is that this is an initiating love. God loved us when we were altogether unlovely, when we were unable and unwilling to love him in return. 
He loved us when we were yet sinners, dead in our sins and trespasses, hostile in mind and enemies of God. If God initiated love toward us who were so infinitely unworthy, how is it that we should love one another? How is it we should love those who we count as unworthy as well? God's love is an initiating love. We see also in these verses that God's love is a sacrificial love. Think of the love of a parent for a child. It's a love that is demonstrated time and time again by sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of time. It's a sacrifice of money. It's a sacrifice of comfort. Even at times, a sacrifice of sanity. And yet, even that sacrifice that we see a loving father or loving mother mother showing towards their child pales in comparison to the love that God showed us in paying the ultimate price by sending his sinless and only begotten son to the cross to die a brutal death for penalty of sin that belonged only to us. As the hymn goes, what wonderful, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. God's love is a sacrificial love. We see in this verse two that it is a tangible love. God did not love us in word only, but in deed. He sent forth his son into the world that we might live through him, that we might be, that he might be the propitiation for our sin. This is not just a word, a love in word like he warns against, but it is a love indeed. Something he charges us to, as Stephen talked about, chapter three, verse 18 last week. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is where the rubber meets the road. What I say can reflect the way I feel, but what I do is the ultimate reflection of how I love somebody else. So God's love is initiating. God's love is sacrificial. God's love is tangible. There are many other things we could say about it as well, but it's no less than those things. These are the ways that we should love one another. And while no one has seen God physically, John says, the God who revealed himself in his son now reveals himself if and when his people love one another. Do we think about the importance of that, the gravity of that, that the way that we love one another speaks something either true or false about the invisible God? John says that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And this idea of his love being perfected in us does not speak in any way to a deficiency of the love of God on his part. But rather it speaks to the idea of being brought to completion in the act of expressing that abiding love and for one another. I think the idea is somewhat similar to what he expresses in 1 John 1.4 when he says, that he is writing these things so that their joy might be complete. It's two different Greek words, but I think the concept is the same. And that the, John is riffing on the same idea when he says that love for one another brings, completions to God, brings completion to God's love for us because whatever gift God bestows upon us, whether that is the joy or grace or love that he gives, it is perfected and brought to completion when we have an expression of it towards one another. God's love is perfected in us when we have love for one another. 
So we see that we have the grounds for Christian love in verse 7 through 21. Those grounds are the work and person of Jesus Christ and God sending him to the cross on our behalf. And then we're going to see in verses 13 through 21 that we can have a confidence, that we can have an assurance from this Christian love. So after articulating the grounds for this love that we owe to one another, John seeks to give assurance to his readers by the confidence they can have from the love of God manifesting itself in their lives. John comes back again to the assurance that we can have through confession of Jesus Christ and the love of God in our lives. And John then speaks to a specific confidence that true love perfects in the life of a believer. He says, by this, excuse me, By this love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what is this relationship between love and fear of judgment? What do these things have to do with one another? I think what John is getting at here pretty explicitly is that as long as there's a latent sense of judgment, a fear of ultimate rejection, love cannot possibly have had its full and perfected effect in the life of a believer. It cannot have been properly understood. It cannot have been properly embraced. And it cannot have been properly celebrated if we persist in a fear of judgment, when we really know and really experience the truth and the fullness of God's love for us, it drives out all fear of rejection and condemnation. Because as John makes very clear, our fear of judgment should be rightfully squelched in the light of the grounds in which God has demonstrated his love for us. That is by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've seen the term propitiation earlier in chapter two, but it's worth revisiting again as it relates to the confidence that we have before God. To be a propitiation is to be an atoning sacrifice with the atoning turning away God's wrath and restoring us to favor with him. John's use of the term propitiation is intended to convey the efficacy of Christ's atoning work because by it he has satisfied totally and completely God's judgment against us. I know there are Christians in this room who likely struggled their whole lives to forgive themselves for sins they've committed in the past. They think that the sins they've committed are too egregious, too heinous, unforgivable, and maybe they live in fear of condemnation and in judgment and with a mistaken notion that because they haven't been able to forgive themselves that God can't or hasn't forgiven them either. But when we fear judgment and condemnation as children of God, we are doubting the very efficacy of Christ's atoning work on the cross and assuming upon ourselves that there is some balance of injustice that we alone are left to pay. But John tells us plainly that we can have confidence because he says, as he is, so also are we in the world. Think about that. As he is, 
so also are we in the world. What kind of confidence does that inspire in us as those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in Jesus for our salvation? John Stott says of this comparison that as he is, so also are we in the world. He says, to be sure, we are not yet like him in our character or in our bodies, although to some extent we do resemble him in our conduct. But in our standing before God, even while remaining in this world, we are already like him. We are sons in and through the Son, begotten or born of God as he was, the object of God's love and favor like him. Therefore, if Jesus calls and enjoys God, er, and called and calls God Father, so may we. We can share the confidence before God, which Jesus himself enjoys. Paul speaks to this type of confidence we can have in Christ beautifully throughout Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of the more famous chapters in the Bible. And Paul puts his finger on this, this type of confidence that we can have before, Christ, before God on the day of judgment because of what Jesus has done for us. He says in verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he closes the chapter in Romans 8, verse 31 through 39, with this beautiful string of assurances that those who are in Christ can never ultimately be separated from the love of God. Those who are in Christ will not face judgment because of what Christ has accomplished on their behalf. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we will not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who are in Christ, for those whom God indwells, for those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation, there is no condemnation. There is no fear of judgment for those who are trusting in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only by our confidence in God's love expressed through Christ can we have real assurance on that day of judgment. John Calvin says of this confidence, Speaking of works, he says, for experience proves that as to trusting in works, there is always an occasion for trembling. Therefore, he says, no one can come to mind with the, no one can come to the, with a tranquil mind to God's tribunal, except that he believes that he is freely loved. Believing, trusting, resting 
And the free love that God has shown us through Jesus Christ is the only path to confidence that we can have on that day of judgment. And if you are here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ, I know I speak for our elders. When I plead with you in love to understand that this day of judgment that John talks about is very real and it is very certain. There will come a day when every hidden deed is exposed and brought to light and God will judge sin with the judgment it deserves. Those who are in Christ have a confidence before him on that day. And it's not because of any righteousness of our own, but because Jesus took the penalty of our death and our sins on the cross and gave to us instead his own righteousness. We have a confidence before the Lord because of his love and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. If you are not in Christ, you have no confidence for that day because your sin will be exposed and condemn you before a, before a holy God. We beg of you, turn to Christ in faith and in repentance and experience the love of God that casts out all fear of judgment. Finally, John turns his attention again to the love that will be borne out in our lives towards one another. In verses 19 through 21, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen, or who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the second time in the chapter that John is making mention of the invisible nature of God. And in this context, he is seeming to draw a comparison on degree of difficulty, saying that if we are incapable of loving the, the, our brother, the one who we do see, then it is certainly going to be harder and impossible to love the God whom we have not seen. And if we prove ourselves incapable of loving those who we see and know are image bearers of the invisible God, we can have no ground of assurance to say that we love God himself. These are heavy verses to think about. And even as believers, we sometimes bristle as we read this and we think, am I doing this? Am I loving my neighbor? Am I loving one another as God has loved me? I think Stephen broke, spoke really beautifully to this last week, but it bears repeating again that none of these assessments, none of these tests that John gives us are meant to reflect a perfection on our part. The hard truth is that while we are still in the flesh, we will never love as intensely, as purely, and as perfectly as we should. We all stumble in many ways, says James. And yet, we have confidence and we have assurance because even the presence of love to God and to one another, it all is a real testimony and assurance to the Spirit of God in our life, to the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. And we should give thanks and we should give praise to Him for the assurance that that brings. God desires that we would have this assurance because of the love that's being manifested through the love that he has shown to us. So we're going to struggle with this. We're going to be sanctified in this. And we'll close with this. Eric, if you want to come up. Charles Spurgeon prescribes the solution for sanctification and growing in love toward one another and in growing towards love. 
And he says, but after love is divinely born in our heart, it must be divinely nourished. Love is an exotic, he says. It is not a plant that will nourish naturally in human soil. Love is a rich and it's a rare thing. It would die if it were left to be frostbitten by the chilly blasts of our selfishness. And if it received no nourishment, but that which can be drawn from the rock of our own hard hearts, it must perish. But as love comes from heaven, so it must also feed on heavenly bread. It cannot exist in the wilderness unless it is nurtured from above and fed by manna from on high. And so Spurgeon asked the decisive question, on what then does love feed? And the answer, he says, is that love feeds on love. That which it brought forth, that which brought it forth becomes its food. We love because he first loved us. The constant motive and sustaining power of our love is his love to us.